You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. was a kid they used to play westerns on sunday afternoons and if there wasn't a ball game on my old man and i used to watch them everything from spaghetti westerns to old john wayne flicks and it was then that i was introduced to the magnificent seven i'd never heard of seven samurai which the magnificent seven is based on and much like many people in north america and so my introduction to it came by way of a western starring all of the biggest names of that era now since then Seven Samurai has gone on to influence a great number of movies, everything from this western, various anime, hell even cartoons. Watch Seven Samurai, then A Bug's Life, and feel your mind explode in front of your kid's eyes. Seven Samurai has gone on to become one of the greatest and most influential films of all time, and some have even said the greatest and most influential film of all time. Though the movie is nearly four hours long, the pacing is never slow, and as one commenter said, during the film's additional commentary, you can take four minutes from anywhere in the movie and it's better than anything else out there in terms of editing, cinematography, story pacing, everything. Now, Kurosawa had never made a samurai film prior to this epic saga. However, the time period had always been one that intrigued him. It takes place during the 16th century, and this is the, the an era of civil war, which started in 1467 with the Onin War, which was essentially a quarrel over who would be the next shogun, and it leveled the capital of Kyoto was massive. There was lots of conflict, and class lines were very clear, though there was also a lot of social rep- rebellion in that time. Now, Kurosawa had heard an anecdote about a farming village who had employed samurai to protect them and from there researched people from that time to base his characters on. He co-wrote, edited, and directed Seven Samurai. Though the number seven was designated as the smallest amount of samurai which would be needed to protect the village from all sides, it raises an interesting story idea about groups and group dynamics, as well as an individual's place within that group. Tonight, Vince and I are going to discuss the seven, seven samurai, the magnificent seven, and a recent anime retake, which we both thoroughly enjoyed, Samurai Seven. So what was your first introduction to Seven Samurai? Well, much like you, uh, it was through The Magnificent Seven. Uh, Growing up, you know, my afternoon movies were more, you know, kung fu, giant monster stuff. But my grandparents had a huge videotape collection, and my grandfather loved old westerns. And Magnificent Seven was one of the ones that, you know, really caught my eye because, you know, I was a young kid, and these guys were basically like a group of superheroes almost. And it wasn't until much later in life, like, adult life that I really started getting into a lot of the classic films altogether, but especially uh, Seven Samurai and a lot of Kurosawa's other work. And it just, the style and everything just grabbed a hold of me. Well, yeah. And Kurosawa is just 
such a master at at cinematography and how he wanted his film to look. It's Andres Hammonds, who he worked with as well. But you look at the manner in which the movie is shot, and I strongly recommend to everyone, if you bought the Blu-ray, the extended cut one, of course, because the other version that many people had seen was the butchered version that came out because they wanted to try to cram in as many showings in a day as they could. And basically the film is damn near four hours long, so they cut it way down. But you need to watch the full movie and understand that even though it's that long, so much happens at all times that you never feel like it's actually dragging. But the thing is, is that the he was so good at all of these things. And when you put it all together between that and then, of course, the people that he chose to work with, uh, much like the uh, the... Um, what's his name again? Fumio Hayasaka, who did the, the score. He worked with people who were geniuses at what they did. So you wound up with something that was beyond just your everyday run-of-the-mill movie. It was, again, it, it was an epic saga. Yeah, a lot of those filmmaking effects that he pioneered. Exactly. You know, jump cuts, you know, wipes, and all these things that really didn't exist before Kurosawa, and you couldn't really imagine modern films without them. Well, <laughs> The Matrix owes, owes its bullet time slowed down to Kurosawa. He was the first one who pioneered that type of scene, slowing down the initial fight scene between the first samurai recruited and we'll get to that later but yeah he was the first one to do that and we're talking about 1954 here Mm -hmm. so in terms of the story for the the people who have actually never seen the story it can be broken down into a fairly simple you know few paragraphs but there's so much more to it and so many layers and it starts off and again pacing is Phenomenal. You start immediately with the action. These bandits, these ronin, these masterless samurai who are have banded together and who raid villages. And they are coming over this horizon. And you can see the Western influence that had influenced Kurosawa's work as well. He was influenced by the Westerns of North America. And so they're coming on horseback over this hill and they're going to a village and they're saying how they'll be back to get all of the, to raid all of the barley once it has been harvested. And then as they depart, you see that one of the villagers overheard this and he quickly runs back to town to the village to tell everyone. Now here is the first scene too, where you see the circle motif, which is throughout the entire movie. And you see how everybody in the village is, assembled in a circle in the middle of the village. And this is something that they said, again, applies to so much of the movie. The the samurai are represented as circles on the flag. And there's the idea of coming around from where you started and everything, everything is equal in the group of samurai and things like that. And so the villagers are essentially, they, they've already been raided by this band of bandits and they are living on gruel they are really not doing well and they're falling apart at the seams and some of them are suggesting that they should fight against them which is a ludicrous concept at this point and in terms of the movie and then some of them are saying that they should just give up and die and you have one of the villagers who becomes a prominent 
character actor throughout the movie, Rikichi, and he is the one that suggests that they should find a way to fight back somehow. So what's ironic here is that this came about through an anecdote that he'd heard, but if you actually look at the time, they were saying how the uh, this rarely happened, actually. In fact, farmers had a lot of power, and in some cases, enough so that they were allowed to run their villages independently from the daimyo. There was a lot of power that this that they had knowing that they could band together against whatever came their way. Now, granted, of course, there are stories of, well, as this here, this, these bandits raiding tons of villages, but there were cases where villagers, actually farmers held an amazing amount of power during that time. He who controls the spice (laughs) or at least the rice. In this case, I'm thinking more that the farming utensils, (laughs) the implements, (laughs) those do a lot of damage. And so, the village goes to the village elder, just referred to as the old man, and they go and speak to him. And he lives in the um, the, the water mill thing, and uh, and so he is phenomenal character. And he comes about a few times throughout the movie, and he explains to them that yes, they should in fact do something about it, and that they should hire samurai to protect them. And here's where you get. The first sense of a very important part of this movie, and that's the humor in the movie. A lot of people, when they think of this movie, if they've not yet seen it, don't appreciate just how much very subtle, and in some cases a little over the top, but humor that there is in here. Because he doesn't just say, go get samurai, go get hungry samurai. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's because they, you know, they don't have any money, so... How how else are they going to pay them except with you know what they're able to farm up? And <laughs> they don't have any rice either. That's the thing. And that's their currency that they used for a lot of things. But that was taken last season by these bandits. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like you said, that, that was so great because as they're sitting around discussing, you know, they go, what kind of samurai is going to fight for us? And that's when the old man chimes in, hungry ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing, too, to keep in mind, and this is something that you see later on as well, is that... Kurosawa was trying to impart upon us through this movie this idea of what a samurai should be. This noble person who works to protect those who cannot protect themselves. The reality of the time was that samurai were often vain and, in fact, in some points, cruel and very self-involved and really could not be bothered to protect anybody. And you see that when the villagers go to, the farmers go to the nearest little town to try to recruit samurai. And here's also yet another scene where you can see the brilliance that was Kurosawa in terms of the cinematography and how the scenes are done and whatnot. Because the first samurai that they approach, you don't get this scene of them just walking up and talking to them. It's this, you can almost feel the explosion as the crowd disperses. The Rikichi falls to the ground and this samurai comes up holding this massive spear and he is just incensed that they would suggest he needs their pity like this and storms off. And that is what they can expect from all the samurai. That's what the other 
farmers who are less you know, enthusiastic about this idea, or one may say just a little bit more realistic about it, are saying this is what we can expect from everyone. See, and here's one of the things that looking back at it now where I've you know had so much more experience with various samurai films and you know movies comics etc that Kurosawa did differently is costuming where we see you know all of the you know the proud samurais you know the the ones who are too good to help the villagers you know they have the armor they have the elaborate regalia whereas the ones that really do end up helping them being the true samurai the true warriors instead of just you know the the nobles basically they're a lot of them are lacking in, even in pants yeah. you know they're they're, they're yeah, there could have been very... a lot more pants in this movie <laughs> <laughs> mufuni i'm looking Especially at you some of those camera angles <laughs> yeah. man but they they're wearing much more you know spartan clothing just they aren't the noble samurai because you know they don't have you know the nice palaces and stuff to live in they're just kind of normal people and with the exception of katsushiro who's of course you know the young one and hasn't really seen much of the samurai life the rest of them are very simple where you don't see in any modern interpretation of samurai culture even you know the lowest samurai still at least has you know a nice nice robes or or something to go on it's all about the flash not mm-hmm. the actual reality. So here's where we get our intro into the first samurai who was recruited and also will be the leader of this ragtag group. And that is Kambe. Now, this was based on an actual Zen samurai of that era. And he's a very, very calm man who has seen wars and, in, as he later says, lost battles more so than he has ever won but you you can see immediately this this wisdom in the way that he moves and looks and everything the actor that they chose for that role uh takashi takashi i'm going to be butchering names this whole episode just deal with it uh shimura but he'd actually acted already if i'm not mistaken this was his second role at least with uh, kurosawa but, yeah he was in rashomon yeah so completely different types of role very versatile actor and so basically you see him arrive and you see some people basically an entourage with him and a whole bunch of people just watching wondering what is going on kind of thing. And you find out that a bandit had was holding a child captive in a little hut. And so what Kambe was doing was he was shaving his head and putting on some monk's robes so that he could approach this hut to offer the bandit some food and also some food to quiet the child who was screaming like crazy and this was based on an event that had actually transpired as well now what's important to note here is immediately you're given a sense of who the man is because it starts with him cutting his top knot off which for that time for a samurai was huge but again here is a samurai that embodies everything you would want a samurai to be. A man that would do something that extreme for somebody else that he had never met. And so he gets his head shaved, he puts on the, the robes, and all the while you have this very young Katsushiro who is wants to become a samurai. And you find out later he wants to apprentice under Kambe. And you also have 
this is crazy looking Kikuchio <laughs> and played brilliantly by Toshiro Mifuni who and he's got this massive sword even the way he holds the sword is not traditional in terms of how a, a samurai presents himself and he just has this look and Kambei notices it immediately and locks eyes with him and you see him look at him and stare at him for a while and then look away and then even look back again just to to because again he there's something there and he's trying to place it <laughs> see the cast is one of the things about this movie oh, that yeah. really elevates it and and personally like Toshiro Mifune is a legend amongst the samurai films being in so many of them so many of my favorites but also uh takashi is uh like without realizing it you know again years later looking back not only was he in all these fantastic samurai movies from kurosawa he was also a recurring player in a lot of the early godzilla movies which as you know yes are very influential <laughs> to my upbringing so this the fact that the same actor just do I don't anything. want to say by chance, but just so happened to be in so many of my favorite movies is amazing to me. Yeah. So anyways, here the we have Kambe who goes and he does, in fact, rescue the child and he kills the, the bandit, which that actually was not part of the actual events that did happen. The, the story from way back, but he does. And this is the scene where you see the bandit coming out and it's in slow motion. He's dying. He's fallen over, dying, but it's in slow motion. But it cuts to the audience who is in real time, moving in real time, and then back to him again in slow motion. And that disconnect really throws you for a loop. Again, a completely original idea. Now we wouldn't think anything of it. But in that time, incredibly original idea that has now gone on to influence, again, everyone <laughs> who's made an action movie essentially since then mm-hmm. owes this to him. See, and back then it was done, you know, to show, you know, emotional effect uh, of really wanting the viewer to focus on the important part of the scene, which is, of course, you know, that this guy's dying and juxtapose that against, you know, the, the, the villagers and whatnot. Whereas now it's just done just because it's what you do. Yeah. Like it doesn't really, very few movies use it for any sort of proper effect anymore. Yeah. So, once this is done, he puts his rose back on and he basically is starting to leave town. And here is where we have Katsushiro, who is the young samurai who wants to be his apprentice, as well as Kikuchio, who is who witnesses and who follows him out of town, as well as the farmers, of course, saw this and they are seeing someone who could help them or want to help them. So they follow him out of town and you you get, a, again, a very good sense of, of Kambe and how he talks to people and his little mannerisms, how it, like throughout the film, he has this one movement of rubbing his head, kind of such a, uh, a almost a self-effacing kind of motion because he lost his hair and he's, he's just <laughs> a regular guy and that comes across. So once they're in town now and, the, the villagers do finally approach him. They explain what is going on and how they need help. At this point, basically, Katsushiro is just beside him. Doesn't matter if he wants him as his apprentice or not, because Kambi point blank said no. He, he's there and he's following him around. And so they explain what is going on with their village. And this is when you could see that samurai of that time were not just these sword-wielding, you know, men on the battlefield that just kind of went in, sliced and diced and took off. 
they were the generals of their time. They orchestrated battles. They looked at the field of battle, who could attack from where, how things would transpire in a battle and things like that. And they thought it through. So you see a whole other layer there that you may not otherwise have known. So he's running this through his mind just naturally. And it sounds to the farmers like, okay, he's in. He knows what he's talking about. He'll be great. But then he says no, that he can't. His his fighting days are done and he won't help them. And then the farmers start to cry. They, they've basically lost hope completely and they start to cry. And it's that action that really makes them again realize that this is who he is. It's helping people who need help. And so he agrees to take it. From there now, he needs to get six other samurai. Now, this is this is still like you've been sitting down for a while now. <laughs> you you haven't even met the team and yeah, yet we're like an hour in at this point. <laughs> so much has already happened and you have such a sense for these characters. What's important to note at this point too is that again, Kurosawa understood how everybody had to be important in this movie not just the samurai. Mm -hmm. And so the villagers, three of them, especially Rikichi, who is incredibly important in the story, and you find out even more later, and then Manzo and uh, Yohei, like these guys are very, very well drawn out. Like you get so much about them through all of the scenes that transpire and they're important characters. So even though the actual you know, the stars of the movie, the samurai haven't all shown up yet. You've really gotten this amazing story already. Yeah. Say what you will, but Yohei is seriously one of my favorite characters in the entire movie. Yeah. Yohei is phenomenal. And Rikichi is just crazy. Yeah. He's just phenomenal. When you compare him to the equivalent in the Magnificent Seven, <laughs> there's no comparison no. whatsoever. So here now we get... It's, it's, this is where things get interesting because now they have to recruit these other samurai. And so you have these kind of tests that they go through and whatnot, and they bring in the various samurai. Now, most of them are brought in by Kanbei, but uh, one of them is, uh, is actually brought in by by one of the is brought in by Gorobe, who's one of the samurai brought in. He actually goes to talk to and see if he can find one. And you have the wood chopping, <laughs> the, the guy <laughs> who studied at the wood chopping school, <laughs> and, which of course doesn't exist. But you get to see again so much about these other samurais in that time. It's not a simple go out and recruit them. Each one of them has this story that. Even though it doesn't, you know, you don't get a ton of backstory. You fill it in yourself. A case in point, at one point you see there's a duel that's going on. And there's one who's this brash samurai. And then you have a very calm samurai. They're taking out bamboo sticks and so that they don't fight with actual swords. And they basically are drawing an amazing audience who's watching, including Kambe and Katsushiro. So they're standing there watching this, and you can see how Kambe is spending all of his time watching Kyuzo, who's the calm one. And Katsushiro, not yet trained and not yet understanding, is quickly looking side to side, wondering what's going to happen. And so they strike with the bamboo, the bamboo, and then basically the 
weaker of the two is saying, there, it's a draw. And Kuzo is saying, no, you're dead. You would die. That's it. And so the other guy does not take well to this and challenges him to a duel with swords. And Kuzo tries to convince him not to. Don't throw your life away. But it is a time of honor and things like that, too. And finally, he has to. And sure enough, he kills him. And you have that moment, too, where Kambe makes a statement like, this is not a fair fight. Like, this is... This is not going to be good. And here's where you also see, once again, how Kurosawa did not glorify death or war, as you find out later on. There's no glory in it. And again, when the man dies, it's a profound moment in the film already. Now, from there, again, you can transition into some lighter comedic moments, because as we said... There's a number of those, and they often come at the hands of several of the samurai, and like you have Gorobe, who's this very light-hearted samurai. One of the tests that they have is Kambe forces the young Katsushiro to stand just inside of the door with a stick and to basically assault, swing the stick at whoever comes through the door to test the samurai before they get there. And when Gorobe gets to the door... His samurai instincts kick in and he actually stops and laughs. He doesn't take offense to it. It's all in good nature. It's not a problem. And he laughs. And you get that sense immediately that, yeah, this is going to be a fun character to watch. And between him and Kikuchio, of course, you have these these moments throughout that are a lot that relieve the tension. And you have to in a movie like this. Otherwise, it'd be four hours that gets pretty damn depressing. Yeah, and it's, it the whole thing goes to show, you know, for the larger plot, just exactly what Kambe is doing because it's not necessarily about having the best fighters. You know, if they're essentially going through this with for free, you want to have the best people, yeah. not just the best fighters, which goes to show why they bring along, you know, Kikuchio and uh, Haihachi. Yeah, and then you have the fantastic scene where, well, you have a scene where they're all sitting down and basically they, they're running out of samurai to bring along, to, to try to recruit in town. Kambe essentially tells them, tells uh, Kikuchio that he's, uh, or sorry, Katsushiro, that he's not coming. He's too young. There are far too many graveyards filled with young warriors who wanted to go out and prove themselves in battle and that he wouldn't be a part of that. And it's the farmers who convince him that, you know what, he's he's willing, he's able, he's old enough let him fight. And the other samurai actually agree and say, you know what? He'll rise to the occasion, essentially, and let's just treat him like an adult. So then there's the six and that they're going to go off. And these vagabonds around town come storming in saying they found another one for them that he had just gotten in a fight and he's a hell of a he's a whirlwind of trouble he'll be fantastic for you and bring him in and sure enough you already know who's going to be coming in drunk as a skunk as Cuccio who fails the test and gets clobbered over the head (laughs) in what is one of the funnier moments too and then you have this fantastic scene with him, again, plastered, showing, again, how phenomenal Mufuni is as an actor, and talking to the group. And this is where he shows off his pedigree. He has a rolled scroll that shows all of his family tree and everything, and you find out that that's forged, unless he's a 13-year-old boy, which (laughs) he clearly is not. And so 
it's a, just a fantastic scene, and he's left to sleep it off, essentially. And the six are going to leave town. They can't wait to recruit a seventh. Of course, the audience knows it's called the Severn Samurai. So you see, come morning, and they're taking off. Kikuchio is following from behind, which, again, is one of those moments in cinema that's just phenomenal. All of those moments from where they are, that little town, till till they get to the village with Kikuchio following them and how things change is just this masterful storytelling. I love that. See, and again, the larger story that Kurosawa is trying to tell about a true samurai, a, a so-called true samurai would have completely rejected Kikuchio just due to the fact that he, you know, he's not of the proper bloodline. Whereas, you know, these six, they're like, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, if he's a samurai in spirit, if, if not in birth, and that's good enough for them. And just going on with Mifune, like, because the character of Kikuchio was actually added very yeah. late in the production. Like, he wasn't really in the script at all. So all of, not, not want to say all of, but the majority of scenes where you see Kikuchio is Mifune just improving, And it's... I can't believe it worked out as well as it did. Well, they told him too, like they wanted someone who would be larger than life and just go in and provide that, that relief that people needed. But what's funny is that in so doing, they created the link between us, the audience, regular people and the samurai class. He's that bridge. He's the translator for us to be able to relate to this group of samurai. Mm -hmm. And in a number of very important scenes, Kikuchio really is the emotional heart of the movie. Well, not just the emotional heart, which quite clearly is. But it's funny if you think about the movie. And, uh, and I mean, if you think about it as an actual event, okay, you, you've sunk yourself in, you're in, and this is, this is really happening. Think about what it would be like without him. Now, not just in terms of the seriousness of the movie, but how the group would then interact with the village. Mm-hmm. Because in so many of the scenes that followed, he is also that bridge in much the same way that he is for us with the samurai, but between the villagers and the samurai as well. So when they, as an example, when they first get to the village, at this point, Kikuchio is with them for good. And they get there and there's nobody there. And everybody's confused. Rikichi is running, screaming, trying to get people to come out. The samurai are starting to get a little ticked off because of their lack of appreciation for what they're doing for, for no money, really. And Kikuchi was laughing. He's killing himself laughing. It gets to the point where the group is taken to the village elder, again, the old man, to go and talk to them. The old man is explaining how don't hold it against the village. Farmers, all they do is ever live in fear. Don't hold it against them. And they still can't understand. And Kanbei, being the, the great and gentle man that he is, can't understand why these people would fear him. And then all of a sudden you hear this loud alarm ringing, and all of a sudden everybody's out. And this serves a lot of purposes in terms of the story and this and the the actual movie and it shows the samurai boom they're on and you can immediately see Kambe taking control and asking the important questions where did you see the samurai or the, the bandits what is going on who rang the alarm and all that and you find out it's Kikuchio 
coming out with a hammer and a big stick and he's bashing against it laughing and laughing and pointing fingers and putting down the villagers and again showing that complete lack of respect that they had for these people who were going to save them and acting as that emotional release as well for everyone including the samurai who are uh, themselves laughing as well and then to the point where you get the old man, and this is a phenomenal scene too. The old man comes out, and he's leaning over, and he's squinty-eyed, staring at them. And you get that little, "We are right now," and the old man, "Yeah, we're all right." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just such a fantastic scene. And that, of course, is also when Cami, or no, it was Gorobe who says, "I guess we have our seventh samurai mm-hmm. now." And there is that bond between Gorobe and um, Kikuchio that persists throughout the whole show as well even going so far as it was gorobe who made the flag right uh or was it chichiroji because the two of them look so similar i'm trying to remember i had actually written it down because i wanted to make sure that i remember (laughs) no it was heihachi really it was heihachi because we'll get to that later with the flag but yeah no it was heihachi okay then so uh maybe it was heihachi who said then that they now had their seven samurai. But anyways, one of them does. And so that's when he is officially part of the group. Now, at this point here now, we have the group of samurai prepping the village, which means prepping both the actual village as well as the peasants, teaching them to fight and defend themselves. You have a lot of really, really good scenes here between the samurai and the village you can see them the bonds forming as well because again some of these bonds are very very strong which is important to the film later on because you have you have so so much drama when well people start dying so this is important times but one of the most important scenes in the entire movie happens here and that's when kikuchio sees one of the farmers holding a spear, not a piece of bamboo, (laughs) but a spear. And at this point, he gets them to give him all of the samurai gear that they've looted from samurai, meaning that they have either looted from dead samurai or finished off samurais that were, well, close to dying kind of thing, or who invaded, tried to invade them or, or whatever. And it shows that, again, these villagers are completely helpless. So he's taking this stash of weapons and everything to the other samurai. And of course, he is not a full-blown samurai, and you find out a lot more shortly about this. Whereas the samurai look at this in a far different fashion. It, it, it pains them to see this, and it bothers them to no end that these people that they're protecting have killed members of their kind or looted members of their kind, the samurai, and it bothers them immensely. And here you get this scene then, which again... Oh, my God, Mifuni shines here where Kikuchio loses it and starts going off about, yes, samurais are, you know, wretched, sneaky people. They'll tell you they've got nothing, but they're hiding bags of rices and jars of food and, and different things under the floorboard everywhere. They're, they're terrible liars and everything, but you know what? It's samurai who made them into that. And he's, I mean, it's such a powerful scene and to the point of 
tears and he's just sits down, slumps down afterwards, completely exhausted from it. And the samurai are all head bowed, clearly affected by what he said in that scene where Kambe looks up. And I mean, using black and white for this movie was brilliant for a variety of reasons. But this scene here, you can see the shine from his eyes having watered so well with the black and white. (laughs) And it is so unbelievably moving. And that's when he says, you were born as a farmer's child. And that's when you get that revelation, which you kind of always knew a little bit, that Kikuchio was born a farmer. That's why he knows so much about farmers, about these villages, and, and why he hates them so much as well. But he also harbors so much hatred for samurai as well. It, it puts him in such a hard position to be in. And that complexity, when balanced against the craziness of the character, just makes him so dynamic to watch on screen. Yeah, absolutely astonishing because for a lot of, I don't want to say casual moviegoers, but for a lot of people, they actually, from people I've spoken to, they dislike the character of Kikuchio because it's so boisterous and so out of tune with, you know, a traditional samurai character. But like you said, scenes like this and uh, the scene with the the alarm and other stuff coming up later, uh, like with the baby and stuff, that character has so much depth and like I said, he's the emotional center of the movie and it, you could not do this movie without that specific character to hold it all together. Oh, yeah, definitely. Without a doubt, without a doubt, it would be such a different movie. So, sorry, you got something more? No. Okay. So at this point here now, we have some scouts who come by from the bandits to look at what's going on. And the band or the samurai are all hiding so that they don't want to give away what they're working on. And of course it's gotta be Kokotio who's just prancing about. And so the, the scouts take off. So immediately they realize, okay, the the samurai, we're gonna to have to go and find them in the woods and deal with them before they can go and report back to the bandits. And so Kuzo of course knows the hills and he's very, very skilled takes off and he's got Kikuchio with him who feels obliged based on having ruined this as well as Katsushiro who's just going to watch from a distance and, and learn and this is all part of the process for him to learn again. And of course Kyuzo takes care of these guys with no problem. Now when they get back to, to town from there they decide after having talked to, to Rikichi and finding out that there's a, a, a bandit camp that is not too far and they should go and send a small strike team and invade it because if they can take out a bunch of them before the actual bandit attack the village uh, all the better and it's a risk they're willing to take in terms of they, they fear they fear they'll lose at least one of of the samurai so they take off to go and there's three of them that go along with rikichi now by this point we'd also gotten again more backstory although kind of veiled about him and because he doesn't have a wife and yet he has again the woman's kimono in his place and whatnot and he's clearly bothered so you know something's going on they get to the hideout for the the bandits and they look through the the little spaces between the, the the wood and whatnot and they can see not just these bandits sleeping off a what must have been a hell of a night, but also a whole bunch of women there. One of them sits up at one point and clearly 
mind is going because of everything that she's been put through because of these bandits, because they were not nice people. Okay. Let's leave it at that. And she can smell the smoke because the samurai outside decided that they were going to smoke them out. And so started to fire. And this was important for the cinematography as well. This, this massive fire represents so much and it's so all consuming and massive. And it's leading to this scene where again, the, the, the bandits are all coming out at one point and they're being sliced and killed by the waiting samurai. And then as they're retreating, you see this woman come out clearly dazed out of it and everything. And Rikichi runs after her. And when he gets closer, she just has this look of fear and actually runs back into the burning building to kill herself, to get burned alive. And apparently, real life, the actor who played Rikichi went way too close into the building. He was so into the moment and hmm. went too close. And he actually, he didn't get burned, but he had blisters all over his skin kind of things. Like, they were really into it. And so... This leads to the first death as well, because Aachi is there, and he's pulling Rikichi back, and he gets shot. So, that's the first death. Now, here we are, <laughs> two-thirds of the movie in. <laughs> and, again, going back to how masterful Kurosawa was in terms of how he edited his movies and, and paced everything. In that short span, which, again, this is two-thirds of the movie in. So much has already happened to the point where you have to have a five-minute intermission, okay? <laughs> That's how much is going on here. Two-thirds of the way in. And in this span of just a few minutes, you have the first battle. You have the importance of the the muskets, which throughout the movie represents the end of the samurai class. These guns are insanely important to the point that... Every single samurai that dies, dies by the gun, not by the sword. You have, um, the, uh, you have this revelation about Rikichi and his wife, which has been building for some time. You have, again, the death of Heihachi at this point. You have the first funeral back at the village with the, everyone being really emotional and how Kikuchio, uh, uh, how um, Kikuchio realizes that they need something to draw everyone together here instead of breaking them apart because they're saying like, we, you know, this is, we can't go on and things like that. And he runs off and finds the flag that Heihachi had made, which had the six circles representing the samurai, the triangle, which was Kikuchio, who was the, the Lord, Lord, Kikuchi. yeah, Lord Kikuchio, <laughs> who wanted to be a samurai, and then the sign for the, the farmers, and then planting this on the, the roof, and then everybody seeing it and coming together, immediately the bandits show up. In that short span of time, and I'm talking literally just a few minutes, so much happens, and you're left like it's just this whirlwind of emotions going through you. Yeah, the the scene at the bandit camp is my favorite scene in the entire oh, movie yeah? because it, like I said, it's so short but so impactful. And the thing is, it's largely silent because they're of yeah. course sneaking up on this on this on the sleeping bandits. So there's not a lot of dialogue. And the actress that plays Rikichi's wife, even though she's only in the movie for seriously two shots, <laughs> one scene, two shots, 
she was so impactful because he said that scene where she wakes up and smells the smoke, you can see her first instinct is to cry out. Yep. And then her facial expression changes ever so slightly to just signify that no, you know, she's going to let this happen. You know, she she wants these people to burn to death, essentially. And and willing later, to sacrifice yeah. herself for it. And later on, her reaction to Rikichi and uh, the actor that played Rikichi just going insane. It was such phenomenal acting from two – well, one supporting character and you know one one-off character essentially that was just so phenomenal for the overall film. Yeah. So here again, now you're, you've got Big Battle that is about to start, the actual big battle. And once again, you are reminded of the importance of the guns, which is brought up again. At one point, Cuso actually goes off and gets one of the guns from them. And later on, when Katsushiro is bragging about this to Kikuchio, Kikuchio takes off from protecting his post and goes to invade this bandit camp, not invade, sorry, try to sneak into it and steal a, one of the muskets as well to show that he can do it as well. But in so doing, unlike when Kyuzo did it, he abandoned his post and it, Again, he's told by Kambe how that is not the samurai way. It's not about one shining above all the others. It's about everybody working together. And it's that action that leads actually to one of the farmer's deaths because he left them there, if I'm not, not mistaken. Not just one that, of the farmers. Yohei. Yohei. That I was going to say. <laughs> who he's sorry, gotten very, I, very emotional. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, and so was Kikuchiu. I mean, uh, this again, all these moments would have changed who he would become later on so dramatically. And they were his fault. And it's not the first one to happen. But you can, even in the the short span of time thereafter where he is still alive, you can see how it changed him as well. Like when when Kyuzo is shot as well by the bandit leader, Kikuchio dives in. And he's going to avenge this. And he himself gets shot, but he's still got enough left to chase after the bandit leader. And he is actually the one that kills him. Like this, this battle scene that goes on at the end. And, and, and again, Kurosawa is just a master of using the elements as well. You've got rain and the horses are going through the mud and everybody's fighting. The farmers are brought in to fight. There's all kinds of different battle tactics that take place. Hell, you see Kambe with a freaking bow and arrow and he's awesome. <laughs> like there's so much that goes on in that time. In terms of a pivotal climax, couldn't have done any better. Yeah, and it's one of those things where... Like you say, even Kikuchio, when he's when he's bringing out all the swords, and he's yeah. he's just taking out like a half dozen swords and you know burying them in the dirt, sticking them point in, <laughs> because one sword isn't going to be enough to kill all those bandits. And he's he's he knows that he, even though he may be just a farmer, you know, he's taking the stand. You know, he's finally accepting you know the samurai path. The the irony is that a real samurai never would have done that. They True. would never use somebody else's a fallen samurai soldier, whether it was even if it was a Ronin bandit, their weapon to defeat them with. And here's Kikuchi lining them up. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie ends. Of course, they they do fin- finish off the last of the bandits, and the movie ends 
much more uplifting. Again, the, the score is so amazing for this movie. And you have this loud music, boisterous music. The, the farmers are planting the rice and they have their ceremonial songs and they're planting and singing and everything's going great. You have, again, Shino, the young woman that Katsushiro had a dalliance with coming out and not ignoring him, but quickly acknowledging that what they had is done. And that's that she's moving on with her life, which is the life of a farmer. And of course you have the remaining three of the samurai, um, Sichiroji, Kambe and Kazushiro standing in front of the graves with the swords sticking out of them with the horizon right above again, cinematography is amazing here. And these famous words from, from Cambe saying like, seems we've lost again. Mm-hmm. The farmers won, not us. And it ends, it ends there like powerful, powerful moment. Yeah. And I really can't say much more about the movie. Yeah. So, <laughs> Let's lead in and transition into Magnificent Seven. Now, this is going to require a lot less going over the story because, again, it was a remake of that. And it's funny. There was a, an interesting story. If you listen to the additional commentary on the, the, the DVD for Magnificent Seven, one of the people who is uh, doing the, the commentary is James Coburn, who just has this amazing voice, i got to say. Yeah. And he's telling the story how they all got to meet Kurosawa. And so Kurosawa, when he saw them, he's pointing at them and he was saying, Magnificent Seven. And they pointed back, he pointed back and said, Seven Samurai. (laughs) And Kurosawa said, oh, you know. And (laughs) Coburn said, well, that's where it came from. That's where Magnificent Seven came from. And Kurosawa said, don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is one of those things where... I really want to get the Criterion versions of these movies because the DVD copies I own of Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven are both, you know, old bare bones DVD releases from, you know, way back when DVDs were first becoming a thing. And, you know, everybody's all the studio's goals was just get your movie on DVD. And, you know, all the special features and stuff really weren't that important. And this is something we talked about uh, earlier where you were talking about you listen to the director's commentaries. I was like. I don't know anybody else that <laughs> listens to those. My, my friends laugh at me when I'm talking about the stuff I learned from listening to director's commentaries on various movies. And for the commentaries alone, in addition to all the other uh, special features, I, I really want the Criterion versions of these two films. I've got the, uh, the special edition of The Magnificent Seven. That was one of the ones I had to have. So, and I'm, I'm very glad that I did, too, because that, that commentary is phenomenal and tells so much about... Um, not just the process, but also the actors and especially the director, John Sturges. Like these people have a ton of respect for Sturges and the work that he did, not just on this movie, but every other movie he made and the, the, the process that he had making movies, which was again, work with talented people and then let them do what they do best. And I mean, when you're looking at the cast for Magnificent Seven, you've got Yul Brenner, who was just coming off The King and I. And so they they joke around that nobody tried to get Todd Billing or tried to prove themselves on this movie. They knew who the king was. Yeah. <laughs> it was Yul Brenner. And ironically, the rights to do this were actually owned by Anthony Quinn for the longest time. And he and Yul Brenner used to be very tight, but something happened that 
that kind of strayed. And then Yul Brenner got the rights from Anthony Quinn, which as James Coburn said, nobody knows how, but he got the rights for it. And so <laughs> it went on from there. But you got Yul Brenner, you got Eli Wallach, who plays the bandit chief, Calvera. And it's, he's actually on the commentary as well. And it was funny because he's saying, when he talked to Sturgis about this, Sturgis was saying he had a role in mind for him. And so Eli was thinking about all the different you know, heroes he could be. And he says, no, no, I want you to be the lead bandit. And he was thinking in the back of his head, thinking, I saw Seven Samurai. He was only there a couple of times, and then that was it. And he said, no, 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 read the script, you'll see. And sure enough, like the bandit for this, the bandit leader for uh, Magnificent Seven is a much larger role and far Calavera more. was a brilliant oh, was, character. Well, and here we have again where he was saying how um, Sturges was telling him, like, just, you know, do what you want to do to a certain degree kind of thing. Uh, and it was Eli, he was talking to the Sturgis and he said, the, um, we, we, we always see these bad guys, this bandits stealing, robbing banks and all, but we don't know where they spend the money and how they do it. And I want to show that. So Sturgis says, okay. So Eli <laughs> says, really? He says, yeah. He says, okay, I want two gold teeth. I want the best saddle and horse you can get and a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and it works in the movie and then of course you've got steve mcqueen who was huge in that time he was just coming off wanted dead or alive and that's interesting too because sturges got him off of there because he wanted him he made it the nearly impossible for them to proceed with that tv show because he wanted him for this role you've got uh young Horse uh, Buckles, but I don't even know how to pronounce his name. He's German, actually, but he they made him out to be the young Mexican. You, you wouldn't have known it. You'd never know it. Of course, Charles Bronson, who shines in this movie. Robert Vaughn, again, James Coburn, which that's hysterical, too. He was actually talking to Robert Vaughn. And Robert Vaughn says, yeah, I'm working on Magnificent Seven now. And he went, what? Who do I have to talk to to get into this? So he got a hold of John Sturges and Sturges told him basically, yeah, we got some other people who are interested, but if nobody contacts me by three, the role is yours. So he says, great. And so he finds out which role is left. And the last role is the one that's based off of Kuzo. And he went, hold on. That's the one that was the best swordsman in Japan, right? And he went, yes. He says, great. That's the one I want. <laughs> and of course, if you watch Magnificent Seven, he's the one that's the knife wielding of the bunch. And, um, and he actually, when he got the rollster, just says, okay, you got it. Come and pick up your knives. <laughs> and he had to <laughs> practice with his knives to be able to do those things. And, uh, and that's one of the ones, too, Sturgis told him the only thing he had to do was that initial shot with him where he's on the ground lifting up his hat with one finger. Everything else from then on didn't care. So he based a lot of it on Cuso, and you can see that in mm-hmm. how it comes off. So, yeah, this, this movie is just chock-a-block full of the best of that time kind of thing and they changed some of it obviously they stayed true to a lot of different things but they had to change some of the basic principles because a it's not all taking place in the same country as did obviously seven samurai in japan here we have a group of mexican farmers going out to find american heroes to come and you know mercenaries to come and save them. And this actually bothered a lot of people in Mexico to the point where when the movie was released, it actually initially wasn't released in Mexico. They didn't like the idea of having to look outside of their own country to find people to help them. But there's that. One of the other very big things that had to be changed was the importance of, again, 
in Seven Samurai how it was the oncoming of the gun that was mm-hmm. the destruction of the samurai class. Well, this is a Western. There's guns everywhere. <laughs> so that entire theme was completely worthless, meant absolutely nothing, and they couldn't do anything with it. They even changed some of the characters, like the character that uh, Horse plays, well, Chico, he's actually a combination of Katsushira mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Kikuchio, which works in this way. So you have a lot of similarities with the characters, they, and some of them where it really matters, but they changed enough of it to still kind of make it their own as well. Well... Yeah, you don't have the analogy of the oncoming of the firearm. But what you do have here is the increasing civilization of the West, where, yes, the samurai were outdated because the gun was becoming you know, a, a, a standard weapon. Well, as you see in, in this film, the gunslingers, the cowboys, are becoming outdated just because they're not really needed yeah. anymore. So it, it's a very similar... Uh, analogy just done in a different way yeah and then you have again in, in much the same way the seven samurai has these iconic scenes you really have a lot of those in the magnificent seven as well the when the movie first came out it actually wasn't as big as it became over time and now it's it's a lot bigger than it used to be when it first again first came out it's it's but again, some of that is looking back at the characters and the people and the actors and knowing what they, they went on to be. When you're seeing Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen on the screen for the first time, it, it's like watching Paul Newman and Robert Redford in Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. There's something between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And that scene where they have to take the corpse to the graveyard because nobody wants them buried there. And there's that slow horse trot there. In the it's like a block away, too. Yeah. And, and what kills me is that as soon as they cross the line there, all's good. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> the casket yeah. crosses the line. All right. The guy burying him doesn't have to worry anymore. <laughs> but the scene is absolutely phenomenal. And then you have um, Yul Brenner, who plays Chris Adams, who's essentially Cam- Kambe, recruiting different guys to come with him for $20 for six weeks. And he has his own different tests and different hand clapping things and whatnot and hiding behind doors. Um, I like that they kept that Charles Bronson is the woodcut chopper and they Mm -hmm. kept that in as well. And of course, James Coburn with his same draw thing as we saw with Cuso as well. And, and you know, all those similarities, I really enjoyed that moment it's nowhere near as long as it was or you know detail as what we saw in the seven samurai but it's it's a, a phenomenal little montage or getting everybody together yeah and, and uh it's one of those things where chris as a character is so like laid back and you know kind of soft-spoken almost but just the fact that it's yul brenner he commands the entire yeah. screen in yeah. any scene he's in. Like, the, the actor and the character could not be more different. But, <laughs> but it, it works. works. Yeah. 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 You, you, this is the guy that you'll follow in the battle. And obviously that's what happens. So much like in Seven Samurai, they're going to the village. You have very similar scenes where everybody's hiding. And it's the Kikuchio character, Chico, who brings everybody out. And, uh, and so you have a lot of the same things. The same kind of interactions with... The town, the little village as well, becoming friends with them. Charles Bronson hanging out with the kids there, becoming friendly with them. Um, but you have a lot of, again, very similar things. You, you also have the scene, in this case, it's again Chico going out to sneak into the bandit camp. As opposed to Kikuchio, who was so confident going in, 
Chico looks like he's going to piss his pants any minute. <laughs> like to the point where he's lighting the bandit uh, Eli's cigar and it's like his hand is shaking kind of thing. <laughs> but you have some really, really great scenes again up until the fight. Well, including the fight, of course. But I mean, the 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 pacing of the show here is great to show you them interacting with the villagers. But it's also one of those things where you know, at the time, it didn't bother me, but, you know, years later, looking back and specifically comparing it to The Seven Samurai. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that the movie is like half as long. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't get a lot of the character development and stuff. But the one thing that kind of bothers me now is, you know, them putting Katsushiro and Kikuchio together into one character. Really? You can't. Yeah, because I never really liked the character of Katsushiro. Right. So you have all of Katsushiro's like naivete where combined with what are supposed to be the important story elements that Kikuchio lends to the story. And it just, it doesn't quite work for me. Like they're both, you know, don't really know what they're doing, but they're going about it in different ways. Like Kikuchio, you know, he's confident, whereas Katsushiro isn't. And I don't know, it just, the combination of those two characters didn't quite work for me. I think that it works until you compare it to the yes, Seven exactly. Samurai. Yeah, but before I'd seen the Seven Samurai, I thought this was great. I was like, oh, this is the greatest Western ever made until I saw, you know, the Man with No Name movies. But it's beside <laughs> the point. But, it, it, you know, I was like, oh, this movie is fantastic. And then even once I saw the Seven Samurai, I was like, you know, it wasn't until like recently, like when we were preparing for this episode, when I was specifically like comparing the story points of the two movies that it kind of rubbed me the wrong way yeah well the other thing too is that again seven samurai the real heroes kikuchio in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. and he gets to kill the bandit leader well in this one no it of course has to be the top billing star who kills the big bad guy so yul brenner is the one that shoots calvera and i mean in terms of a western and how a western has to be it works you know but it's so much more powerful in Seven Samurai the way that it works out. Mm-hmm. And then you have oh, – I love how Bronson is such the badass that even after he's shot, he falls <laughs> off the roof and keeps shooting. <laughs> and it was awesome. And I also love how Cur- Coburn just stands straight and shoots. None of this dodging behind stuff. He just stands and shoots. <laughs> so, there's, again, the scenes are phenomenal. They changed it up from – how it happened in Seven Samurai. Um, I actually like it, not in terms of liking it more, but in terms of it works better for the movie. And right. for Magnificent Seven works better. And then this being, this not being about samurais, and one of the things that we just glossed over and didn't really talk about for Seven Samurai was the Katsushira's romance with the village girl and how important that is in the story because samurai didn't have dalliances like that they didn't allow themselves to be you know held back by emotions as love and stuff like that no it was you know get the job done and things like that and then there was also of course the class lines that they would not be getting in relationships with farmers daughters and things like that it's it's huge in the story very huge well for magnificent seven we don't have this problem (laughs) you know Chico has a romance with one of the girls in town, and he's the one that, unlike Katsushira, who has to go with Kanbei to, to when they're leaving, well, Chico stays back, and he stays with the girl and takes his gun off and basically 
that's going to be the end of that. And you have, again, it's a Western, so you'll Branner and McQueen falling, uh, going off and riding off in the horizon. You do have the famous last scene again with the farmers won, we lost, we always lose from, from Yul Brenner, but it, it, it does end a little bit differently. But again, in terms of what a Western is, works perfectly. Yes. So again, both phenomenal movies in their own rights and so much more powerful when you watch them back to back or, you know, within a little bit of time of each other. So you can see those similarities and those influences and everything. Now, what's funny is, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of different movies, TV shows, cartoons, you name it, that have been influenced or that are point blank remakes kind of things. And one of the ones that came out not that long ago was an anime by the name of Samurai 7, the number 7 in this case. And it's funny because I watched this with my son not that long ago. We've been having fun watching a whole bunch of different types of anime and things like that. And we hooked on this one and having seen 7 Samurai and Magnificent 7, it was like, this was just so much fun to watch. And then my son, we then introduced him to Magnificent 7 and... Seven Samurai, so he's gotten introduced to that by way of an anime. Now, the times are changing, is when it boils down to. <laughs> well, yeah, Samurai 7 was put out by uh, the studio Gonzo, who had a fantastic run in like the early and mid-2000s with a whole bunch of great animes that they came out with, including Samurai 7. And one of the things that they were known for was incredibly high production values. Oh, like, yeah. the animation quality on this series is phenomenal like it it's it's probably it actually is the last anime series i actually bought in a physical copy and i don't regret it all. even the box it came yeah. in and that was a uh, i think it was funimation who did the uh the american release but the artwork the character designs the animation the music everything in this is absolutely top-notch yeah no it is and especially i found the English voice track as well, because unlike a lot of animes that are done in Japan, these guys actually got an entire voice track done for English audiences with some amazingly huge names, some of them I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. And the story is very much in line with the original Seven Samurai, with a few key changes. And one of the important changes was, of course, they had some actual female characters in the movie <laughs> that didn't really exist in the original, aside from, you know, Rikichi's wife and uh, Katsushiro's girlfriend and stuff, where the the main villager that actually goes to recruit the samurai is a priestess by the name of Karara. And you get a lot of mystical elements melding into the story where, you know, she's kind of being guided by the spirits as to, you know, who the right samurai would be. But all of the characters, the actual samurai, are presented here, and any changes that are made to the actual characters are actually done for the better. Because, of course, you know, it's an anime series, 26 episodes long, so you've got, you know, a total running time of like 11 and a half hours, which is slightly longer than the original <laughs> Seven Samurai. Not that much, though. So you can, you know, really flesh out the characters a little more. Like uh, Some of them, like uh, Kanbei, Katsushiro, uh, Shichiroji, they're pretty much the exact same characters they were in the original movie. But it's giving the, you know, the, I don't want to say lesser samurai, but the ones that didn't qu get quite as much screen time, their chances to grow. Stuff like uh, Grobe, making him more of a showman. And he he was... I was so sad when he died. Oh, yeah, no <laughs> he, even though I knew 
he was going to die. <laughs> but, you know, the way he went out, every character here had, you know, their hero moment. Like, hi, hi, Hachi. Oh, dude. Oh, man. And the, and the Seven Samurai, he, he, he wasn't really there. <laughs> like, well, you know, there he was showed a reason up and he was that, the though. first one to die. Like, his character didn't really do much. Yeah, but that's because um, Kurosawa hated him. They talk about that too. The Kurosawa was notorious for that. He'd pick one person to pick on during filming kind of thing. And for this one, it was the guy who played Heihachi. And he was merciless with him throughout everything. He could never do anything right. And because of that, there was there was really, you did not see him on screen a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, in the anime, you know, Heihachi yeah. is Quite. more of a pacifist and, you know, he's still that fun loving character, but the way that he is integrated into the story and, you know, actually part of the story in this particular adaptation, like he was great. Uh, Kikuchio is, of course, the same exact character with the small caveat that he's an eight foot tall cyborg. <laughs> Kikuchio, and once again, who steals this series? Honestly, absolutely steals the entire series, shines. It's, he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And like his personal relationship with Karara's little sister oh, and you know stuff dude. like that, it he again was phenomenal. And well, it, what what I liked is that they took that from Seven Samurai. When you're watching Seven Samurai, there's a lot of scenes where Kikuchio is is interacting with the children in town, mm-hmm. and because he's such a buffoon, that the kids absolutely love him. And so here, having Kikuchio in in the anime being so tight with Karara's little sister is. Oh, and she she's going to marry him when she gets old. <laughs> it's so freaking awesome. And then, of course, Kyuzo. He very, very different. Well, I don't want to say he's a different character, but definitely a different interpretation of the same character trope. Where when they first meet him, you know, they're as enemies. You know, he's a bodyguard for this important noble who uh, kidnapped Karara at some point. And we get all these half fights between Kyuzo and Kanbei and you know, the other samurai. And the entire reason he comes along with them in the first place is that he wants to make sure Kanbei survives so that they can actually finish their fight. So Kyuzo is still that same you know, stoic, you know, best swordsman on the planet character, but his motivations are far different. And for this story, it works out so well. Oh, it, it throws a whole different spin on the character and gives them so much to work with throughout all of those those episodes that is again quite different than the original while still staying true to it in certain ways you know the in, in terms of the the feel of the story but yeah i actually i don't want to say i preferred it but man did i ever love that relationship between kambe and kyuzo in this yeah you you can't really say one is any better than the other just because they're so vastly different even though they're essentially telling the same story it's it's you know two different interpretations and they both work brilliantly for what they are well the thing too is that it he is then that tie between the emperor and the samurai as well as the emperor and the village people he's that go between he's the you know because he was a guard to them. So he plays an important role in tying those elements of the story because here, the bad guy, it's not like a team of bandits. It's far greater than that. So, and it's, it's very important in terms of the story as well. It's got a lot of airtime. So he acts as that, again, that go between, between those two worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Because while the core story is essentially the same, you know, former samurai have become bandits after a great war and, you know, they're they're invading various villages. The samurai 
are kind of giant robots in this one. Like, of course they are. When I say giant, they are giant. Like I, I couldn't even begin to like guess as to their actual size. But it's you know they have these huge battleship air cruisers, and it's not even like no matter how hard the villagers try, they could not stand up to to the to this force it's not just a bunch of guys on horseback with a, with two guns no this is this is a, an, an overwhelming force and, but it just goes to show that you know how awesome they made the samurai characters and you know these seven dudes are standing up to these yeah. you know <laughs> this overwhelming force and on one hand yeah it's kind of over the top it's you know super action oriented but again for for the type of you know, story they're telling it for the genre of anime as compared to, you know, an old school samurai movie. Everything works the way it's supposed to. I, we're going to be talking about different anime as we progress with this, this podcast and you'll get my impression on a lot of things. And there's some things that I don't have a lot of patience for. And, you know, if it's, if it's stupid, bad storytelling, I just will not have the patience for it. But if it works in terms of the story, I'm all for it. If you can, if you can, make sense of crazy i'm there with you and this works it just works because it's that steampunk kind of future parallel universe kind of thing where the the technology has kind of run amok so again for what it is it actually makes sense that you'd have these big freaking robots rampaging over villages Mm-hmm. They, when it starts off, the, like the beginning of the first episode, it, if I'm remembering correctly, I haven't actually watched it in a while. Like it's Kambei flying around in a fighter jet. <laughs> and when I first watched it, I'm like, what is this? this what is did I get myself into? Time. I already dropped like the 60 bucks on the box set. I was like, <laughs> the other 25 episodes, like better, you know, right to the ship. <laughs> But one of the great things about this is because it's you know so much longer to tell its story is it takes things in a wildly different direction after the battle at the village. And like, at the battle at the village, if I'm remembering correctly, only uh, Kikuchio and Gorobe died, correct? I'm going to go with that, yeah. <laughs> so well, there's – No, Kikuchio didn't die for a long time. I thought he died in the battle at the village. Um when he picked up the giant, you know, 20 foot long sword and started swinging it around. I'm trying to remember exactly when he died. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Right, it's been a few months since I've seen it as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, while we're okay to watch, you know, a couple hour movies, watching a 26 episode anime in a week is uh, asking a bit much, much from both of us. But they had all this extra you know, time to work with. If they had just told the original story over the course of 26 episodes, it would have dragged on interminably. So really – like the last almost half of the series they go back to the capital to deal with the emperor because as we come to find out the emperor during the you know the last great samurai war that led to you know the bandits and all this he was injured like horribly like he's he he can't walk you know he's 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 a shell of his former self and the whole thing is he went and bought out the samurai like he was so angry that you know what had happened to him that he bought the samurai and you know forced them into banditry to kind of you know take away their honor and once uh you know kambe and the rest find this out they go okay you know this is the real problem like we can get rid of all the bandits we want but as long as the emperor is still around nothing is ever going to be quite right again so they go on this completely brand new tangent to the story that lends itself to a completely 
amazing couple of sequences because now, you know, it's one thing to be fighting bandits. Another thing is entirely to be fighting an empire. Yeah. Well, again, because they had so much more time, they were also able to spend a lot of time with characters that otherwise did not get quite as much attention. Again, Rikichi is an insanely important character in Mm -hmm. Seven Samurai. However, in the anime, he's even more important. And actually, I will say, even more likable. And I loved him in Seven Samurai. Man, you really get to care for this character because, again, he lost his wife and he's fighting to get her back. And he's just a farmer, but he, 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 it, it, it's like he's shaking so he wants to be able to defend himself and do something and yet he just spends most of his time just carrying the rice around so they were able to spend so much time on these characters that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to see by sheer virtue of the fact that they had so many episodes to work with and once we get into the storyline with Rikichi's wife in the anime, yeah. that's that's taken to several different levels where, uh, you know, the bandits, of course, you know, kidnap women as they're raiding. But you know, the bandits don't have bodies like they, they've basically transplanted their consciousness into robots. So they don't have a whole lot of use for women. The whole reason that they're t- t- taking all these women is they're bringing them back to the emperor. And the emperor is basically, you know, trying to clone himself and, you know, reproduce and, you know, create, you know, a new line to, to last for many years to come. And Rikichi's wife is, of course, one of these women who's been impregnated by the emperor. And instead of, you know, having that defiant streak, it's very different here where it's never really explained, you know, if she's brainwashed or if it's some form of, you know, Stockholm syndrome or whatever, but – you know, she swears that she's in love with the emperor and, you know, she wants nothing to do with Rikichi. And even once they recover uh, her and bring her back to the village, she's an incredibly different character because some part of her of her psyche and her personality still wants to be with the emperor. And seeing that slow transformation back into, you know, a, a villager by the end of the movie when – you know, she she kind of comes to terms with her you know her place in society once again. That was very important to the overall storyline. Yeah, this isn't a Disney movie where they rescue her and she's all smiles and you know life is good and she's back to normal. She is mentally scarred from this experience, and it's you wonder if she will even recover. Let alone. You know, there, there's no chance of a full recovery, but you even wonder if she'll even ever be a, a hint of who her former former uh, who her former self was. Yeah, because you know, Rikichi is you know ecstatic to see his wife again and her her alive and back with him. So he's trying to you know be the good husband and you know return things back to normal. And she wants nothing to do with him, and it's it's heartbreaking at yeah. points because like like we both said, we both love the character of Rikichi. And, you know, seeing this character that, you know, we, we like just be repeatedly, you know, shut down by his own wife and, you know, uh, the, the heartbreak he was feeling, it, it added another layer of emotion to the story that wasn't there in the original. And I can really appreciate it being added in this particular adaptation. Yeah. So, like I said, like, overall, it's very similar to the original with the exception of the added plot lines and stuff with the extra running time. But it's one of those things where, <laughs> thinking about this, I compare it to what we just saw with uh, – on our website, we have the trailer for the new 47 Ronin movie mm-hmm. where you have this traditional, like, really loved story in The Seven Samurai and they add giant robots and magic and, you know, all these incredible elements to it. And it works. 
Whereas we look at, you know, 47 Ronin and they're taking, again, this traditional story, but they're adding all these, you know, supernatural things to it. And for whatever reason, at least from what we've seen so far, it doesn't work. And I'm kind of having... Yeah, but they're adding... It's amazing how how you you can compare the two and it's not that they're not being true to the original. You can take the original and, and... you know, do brand new things with it. It's that Samurai 7 has the heart of the original 7 Samurai yeah. story, where thus far from what we've seen of the new 47 Ronin movie, that doesn't. It's, you know, it's Hollywoodized version of, of that story. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Plus they added yeah. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> well, even aside from Keanu Reeves, because he's, he's not really a, a fixture in that trailer, just it doesn't feel right. That is conversation for another time. And yeah. much like in our comic book informer podcast, and you make me read bad things, I'm going to make you watch bad things. <laughs> <laughs> this is my revenge. Is revenge. Yes, it will be. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you for listening. You can, of course, get the show notes and leave us some comments about what you think at the site at popcornronin.com. You'll be able to find the podcast on on um, iTunes very soon as well as on Stitcher. You're going to want to be joining us in a couple of weeks because we are going to be doing the second Star Trek. And not just the new one, but how it relates to the old one as well. Come so we'll see you then that was the worst con I've ever heard I can't scream there's people in the house they'll be like what the hell's wrong with you for more movie TV and anime reviews please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments if you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince check out their comic book informer podcast and internet dragons TV gaming videos And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. 